Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. 2022 is finally over, and we're so excited to share the first episode of 2023 with you. This episode of The Negotiation is part one of our conversation with Dave McCoggan. Dave McCoggan is a marketing thought leader and storyteller. He has spent the last three decades in Asia Pacific, leading strategy planning, and in senior management roles with McCann, one of the world's most successful advertising agencies. He joined McCann in 1986 in his native Sydney, where he built the strategic planning function, and since 1995 has been based in Bangkok, Hong Kong, and Tokyo, leading regional strategy communications campaign development for clients like Coca-Cola, MasterCard, Nestle, Cathay Pacific, Sunstar, Hitachi, Johnson & Johnson, and many others. In 2015, Dave launched Bibliosexual, which works with brands to bring together his long-term passion for understanding the relationship between form and content. In today's episode, we discuss Dave's extensive work in marketing brands in Asia. He explains why he chose the name Bibliosexual for his company, and we dive into the discussion of Japanese culture and consumer habits and how international brands need to think about the market when advertising. Enjoy. Japanese ads are more likely to use celebrities in ads than anywhere else in the world. It's the number one market in the world. And so uh, typically, for example, it's twice as likely to use a celebrity ad in Japan as you are in in the United States. Some people, particularly some people working in the advertising market industry that come from the West, think, oh, that's just creative laziness. No, it's not. It's exactly the opposite of creative laziness. The reason why you use a celebrity is, to the Japanese people, this celebrity represents what that product delivers. It's not just saying, it's not the simple thing of, you know, Harrison Ford drinking a scotch, you just paid a million bucks for him to drink the scotch. In America, that's sort of discarded as, well, nobody believes it. Japanese don't believe he drinks it either. What they believe is that that scotch embodies the characteristics that they believe Harrison Ford has. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Dave, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks, Todd. Thanks for asking me to join you. We're pleased to have you. I'm glad I got your name right. McCoggan is not. It's an old <laughs> Irish name. It's not easy to figure out when you see it in print. Not easy. Yes, exactly. And I did for those. I, I'm usually pretty good at it. For uh, for those that have 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 seen me try to stumble with names before, I think I'm usually pretty good. But this one I did not get. I did not nail. I had to be taught how to say the name. Uh, and thank you for That's being cool. my teacher on that. Don't yeah. worry about it. <laughs> so where in the world are you today where you're recording this from? Sure. Well, I, I'm in Bangkok. I This is my home uh, for the last seven years, second time around living in Bangkok. Um, uh, moved back here in 2015, and I based myself from here. Uh, of course, like a lot of people, over COVID times, I 
got stuck. I actually got stuck in Sydney where my son and daughter both live. Went down to visit them and got caught for a year. But basically, Bangkok's home. Yeah. Okay, great. Listen, why don't we – and we're going to talk about a lot of the things that you are doing and that you have done. But sure. I gave us a little snippet into who you are. Can you give us a little expanded version into your background? Yeah, sure. Uh, obviously, I'm an Aussie. Uh, you can tell by the accent. Uh, born and raised in Sydney. Worked in advertising in Sydney uh, for uh, McCann, the big global ad agency, uh, for about nine years, and then got transferred for two years to Asia, which then stretched to 19. Um, and so I was working for them based first here in Bangkok and then later on in Hong Kong, briefly in China, 10 years in Japan, then back in Hong Kong, and then eventually parted ways after, you know, more than 25 years with them. Um, and that, my main job at McCann was I was the head of strategy planning for Asia Pacific, which, you know, uh, meant that I wasn't actually, you know, I'm terrible. I, I can't write a script for an ad. Uh, I don't, I'm a terrible photographer. I don't do any of that stuff. My job was to figure out what the client's issue was and really what the advertising or the marketing communication needed to address and how to address it and then write the brief for the guys that designed the advertising or the PR or whatever. So then when I left McCann, um, fortunately, you know, people kept on, you know, heard that I'd left and sort of said, hey, well, you know, can you come and do a project for me? Can you come and do this project for, for us? And I've ended up um, doing three sorts of work, I guess. I do a lot of work with companies that are trying to understand the marketplace in Asia. Now, historically, as you mentioned, I've worked historically with a lot of the big Western companies, L'Oreal, Cathay, uh, you know, MasterCard, Coke, Nestle. But increasingly, that's also been working with Asian companies that are trying to do something different in other parts of Asia. So a Japanese company trying to expand its business in Asia or an Indian company that's expanding its business globally, that sort of thing. Um, so that's been quite interesting as, as that's happened. Um, and so part of what I do is figure out what the story is that a, the brand or the company wants to tell, who it wants to tell it to, and what's the best way to frame that story. And then that gets me involved sometimes in doing sort of research into what is the narrative that's going to stick or what, yeah. are, what, are the, what are the key narratives going on that, that you know, a, a company or a brand might want to try to take advantage of. Um, and that, again, becomes quite interesting in tracking what are the narratives across all sorts of things. Well, you know, obviously from within categories, but also much, much more importantly, outside of categories. My, my one belief is that uh, a marketer's main role is to understand what matters to people. It's not about understanding how they use your product. It's what matters to those people. And then you've got to figure out what your product and service can do to help them with whatever matters to them, right? So a lot of it is figuring that out and, and look, as looking in different marketplaces across Asia and trying to understand, well, what are the similarities, differences uh, in different groups of people that different companies may be trying to reach or target or talk to in some way? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it kind of goes along the, the vein of, don't be a solution looking for a problem. Go find the problem, understand the problem, and then figure out how you can align a solution for that problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. I mean, I think 
it's sort of interesting because, as you know, marketing and everything in marketing and and marketing communication sort of goes in waves. And, you know, in in a lot of ways, nothing's changed for a thousand years. Um, Literally nothing has changed for a thousand years. Um, All we're doing is tactically doing the same thing slightly differently because of new technologies or new mediums. But, But the reality of it is that if you think about great brands, successful companies, the ones that last over time, it's got nothing actually to do with the actual product. Um, you know, uh, you could talk about where, it, when you actually dig into it, you usually find out, well, actually their product's a me too product, right? Like the, the classic Coke and Pepsi thing, right? 99% of people can't tell, tell the difference in a blind taste test, right? Right. Um, uh, the classic thing about uh, Apple, right? You know, is their technology really superior? No, not really. Most of it in the early days was actually borrowed technology. They just, what they did was they delivered it in a way that people wanted because they found it what mattered to people, right? Um, you know, Nike, you know, is a great brand, a great, you know, leading global leading brand, initially made for serious, serious, serious runners, right? But the, the breakthrough when they came out was realising that everybody wants to be a sort of hero and a sports star in their mind. We, you know, I'm, I'm a 60-something male who in his heart, is still waiting for the Australian soccer team to ring up and say, you're, you're going to play in the World Cup, right? You're in. Um, you know, you're in, right? Um, and that's what great brands do. They figure out what really matters to people and play to that, right? So, Yeah. It's what you just said. So first of all, like the, 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 the cola, you know, the, the Pepsi challenge, right? You know, that kind of, uh, which is a very interesting business case in of its own right, where, you know, because of the Pepsi challenge and the success that they had with that campaign, having Coke abandon what had made them successful for so long to go to the new Coke formula based on the Pepsi challenge results, which in essence weren't something that you could actually base that level of decision on, given that people don't sip they don't take one ounce t- shots of cola. Yeah. They drink a 355 milliliter can. And right. eventually somewhere during the consumption of that can, the sweetness of Pepsi and then the the the, the, the more diluted yeah. sweetness of Coca-Cola changes your perception of how it is. And, and, and that's something that we've always trained and taught with our entrepreneurs is don't fall for the sip test, right? Because yeah. if they don't, if they aren't actually consuming your product the way that they will normally – then the data that you're gathering from the SIP test can't truly be relied upon uh, to make huge decisions. And so you, you kind of yeah, talked exactly. about that. Yeah. What years were you with Coca-Cola and were you around for kind of that Pepsi fiasco in the Philippines? Yeah, I, I worked on uh, the Coke brand from 1986 through till 2013. Um, uh, it cross across different countries within the greater Asia Pacific region. Um, so I was fortunate to work on a number of interesting things. Uh, um, I was actually working as the strategist on the first time that Coca Cola, the first Western brand to ever do a Ramadan specific TV commercial, uh, which was something we generated out of Southeast Asia and was used in something like 40 um, Muslim countries around the world. Um, 
And a few years later, I was the I was in charge of the project to develop the first Chinese New Year commercial by a Western brand in China uh, for Coca-Cola. So these are really, you know, taking the heritage of Coca-Cola and the Santa Claus thing, you know, but then totally localizing it to what's the main celebration of the year in the biggest parts of the world, right? The biggest populations of the world. Um, and yeah. so doing that sort of project was really interesting. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, at the same time, there were also times when, you know, we were, in, you know, involved in stuff that was going on with different issues uh, around the, around the brand or, you know, yeah. as you do. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing that up without your knowledge, just so everybody knows. Dave did not know that was coming because I just watched a Netflix documentary on the Pepsi Where's My Jet. And it was what they when they ran the ads for the Harrier Jet. And in that documentary, uh, documentary, they covered um, something that had happened in in the Philippines, which kind of drew the Asia part of the conversation, you being with Coke. Um, And so for anybody who really wants to dive into that. I suggest you you run over and and check out that Netflix uh, documentary. But I think for the purposes of this podcast, we'll we'll keep going here. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, we have to talk about bibliosexual. I'm sure when I mentioned it at the, at the top, I ran right over it. Uh, people yeah. may have like gone, whoa, 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 whoa. What did he just say? Yeah. So right, right, right. let's go back and solve that um, for people who are probably wondering uh, if we're going to get there. Tell us about the name. Okay. <laughs> Here it is, right? So for those of you listening audio only, he just showed us a business card that says Bibliosexual yeah, on it. Right, right, right. So, and the reason is exactly that, the business card, right? So I, I live and work in Asia. So in 2015, I've got to, I've got to set up a company uh, and register a company somewhere so I can start charging some clients, right? Um, I'm living in Hong Kong and decided and, you know, just da-da-da and goofing around and Actually, the term bibliosexual is something that I've been playing around with for 20 years, using in different presentations. So my wife and I are just talking about it, and she goes, well, why don't you just call it, call, call it bibliosexual because at least it'll get interest, right? And, of course, the beauty of it is that when you walk up, and as you know, in Asia, even today as we come out of COVID, it's, it's gone back to you use a lot of business cards, right? Not so much in North America anymore, but in Asia you're still handing over business cards all the time. And the beauty is when you hand over a business card and all it's got is this big bibliosexual on it, people go, well, as you do, they just go, what, what the hell is that? You know, what does that mean? And that allows me to tell a story, right? And, and, of course, you know, when you're in business in general, when you're in the marketing business, you know, storytelling is fundamental. And so you want to have a chance to tell a story. And the story is quite simple. Many, many years ago, before I got into advertising, I was a children's librarian. I spent 10 years working in children's libraries in Sydney. And when you work in the public children's libraries, you end up with a lot of time to kill. So I just used to read a lot of books um, to kill time. And one day I'm reading a novel and there's a character who was described as a bibliosexual. What the hell is that, right? So I look it up and it turns out being a bibliosexual is an actual fetish. It's a recognised sexual fetish where it's somebody who's sexually stimulated by the smell and touch of books. Now, it then turns out that this is actually based on science because, you know, when you go into an old library or an old, old bookstore and there's that sort of slightly vanilla smell that comes up, right, that's the glue in the bindings. And there's something in that glue that there's a chemical in that glue that actually stimulates your brain slightly sexually. 
Now, for some people, it triggers a more a more sexual thing. I found that really interesting, but what it, what it really got me thinking about was the fact that there are different mediums. Everybody has particular mediums that, for reasons we just can't figure out, we are totally biased towards or we fall in love with or we think that's much, much better, right? And if you're a marketer, it's really important to understand which mediums really matter irrationally in many ways to people. And so, for example, the quickest way for me to explain it is uh, I can't think in Western Canada, I can't think of the name of a newspaper. But if you think about the most rubbish newspaper in, in, uh, in Canada, right, whatever it might be, right, um, and I write an article about anything and, I, and that's printed in that newspaper, if you read it in that newspaper, you'd probably go, this guy Dave McCocken's a total dick, right? Because it, But if the exact same article was in The Economist, you go, well, that sounds pretty intelligent, right? Now, why is that? Well, that's because for a certain part of the world, probably I'm assuming for people like you, The Economist, it means quality journalism. Trashing newspapers mean trash. Now, for other people, it'll be the other way around. Oh, The Economist is just full of wankers, whereas, you know, oh, I can understand what this newspaper is saying. It's saying the stuff I want to hear, right? So that's why I, I called it bibliosexual, and that's why it's an effective way when I'm talking to clients, prospective clients, you know, business people, etc., when I'm giving talks at, at, at conferences, it's a way for me to get back to have you really thought through what's really important to the people you want to reach? And sometimes it's mediums that you hadn't thought about, right? And so okay. that's part of the game. Let me ask you a question that I think might be top of mind with some of our listeners as I try to put myself in their shoes. Just the word sexual, the topic of sex, the entire culture and attitude around that in that area of the world, does it cause you? And and I mean, uh, my assumptions are wrought in this question of, of for sure. Does that ever cause you some 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 grief, some pain, some 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 static, some friction getting over that? Sure. When I first registered the company name in in Hong Kong, the question came back, is this a pornography site, right? Um, and naturally, you do get sometimes that reaction, right? Now, most of the time, the reaction across Asia, across all sorts of cultures is just sort of a bit like you. It's a it's sort of slightly bewilderment, bewilderment like, well, what the hell is this, right? Um, but it allows me to tell the story, right? Mm-hmm. Um but, yes, you know, sometimes, and, and, of course, you have to be very touchy. Now, you know, depending on who you're talking to, but think about that. I mean, if I'm in Canada or, or the United States or England or France or Germany, I also have to be careful, right, about who I talk to about what. We, we all do in, in whatever we're, we're talking about. You know, if you think about, particularly if you think about things like um, the last couple of years and the way the COVID has generated anxiety around certain subjects, right? So you know that the subject of a mask, before we started recording, you and I were joking about something about wearing a mask, right? Yeah. You know that there are certain people, it's a touch point, right? It's like this, this, oh, you know, know, you're completely reducing my human rights and all this sort of stuff. Triggered. Whereas, as, as you would know from, because you lived in China, you would know that in a lot of East Asia, well before COVID, wearing a mask was just a normal thing, but it was worn 
you wore it because you were feeling sick and you were trying to protect society, not you were trying to be protected. So it's a very different angle from the Asian perspective of wearing a mask to the Western perspective of wearing a mask, right? Um, and then, you know, all sorts of subjects. So yeah, you the have mask to be, said something about me, but then it became right. what I'm saying about you. Yes, yes. And then the same thing with vax, you know, vax and anti-vax and all that sort of stuff. Um, the whole work from home thing, of course, where we've seen these different waves and now we're going through another wave again about the reaction to work from home and, you know, is is it when Elon Musk makes a comment about everybody's got to come back to work, oh, my God, what an evil guy. Yeah. You know. Um, That's not the first time we've been through that either. I mean, there was a no, whole future uh, of work, holacracy movement and Zappos and, and Yahoo. And I mean, this is not the first wave we've gone through this. No, time. of course not. Of course not. And um, But, but the, the whole thing is that to your point about you made briefly about the Coke Pepsi challenge, right? Yeah. Is that you have to be aware of the real sense of the way of what people are. So it doesn't matter whether if I'm designing a campaign to reach a million people in, in Malaysia about X, I have to think about am I targeting the, the Chinese Malays or the Malay Malays, yeah. right? Because there'll be slight differences in the way they will react to things, right? Uh, in the same way that quite obviously if I'm, if I'm doing a campaign in Korea and Thailand, I may have to think about, you know, Korea and Thailand, yes, they're both in Asia, but they're very different in a lot of ways. Okay. But they also have, they also have now have some more similarities because a lot of Thais just love Korean soap operas. So, you know. <laughs> you know, okay. So save the future um, homogenization of the region potential, if I could just put it that way. Yeah. Like, because now, you know, K-pop and things, you know, we're starting yeah. to get, tastes of other cultures in you know where it's now allowing for for more interest and 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 that will bring the rest with it and hopefully we start to understand but um it's interesting that you say that and it does kind of segue a little bit into where i want to go with this conversation which is breaking it down by region because you, sure. you you've worked in all, all, so many different regions and i think that's a very interesting way to go about this and i want to start with um japan right and and so for anybody who hasn't visited japan You've worked in Japan a lot. How would you describe the Japanese consumer on the whole? Uh, probably the most precise in the world. So different bits of research will tell you things like a typical uh, – please any, don't anybody be upset when I use the term housewife generically. I'm not trying to be sexist or anything. Right? But, you know, a lot of research that would say the typical housewife, as in house, household shopper in Japan – is three times more likely to read the back of the pack on anything than anywhere else in the world. Three times more likely than anywhere else in the world. So that means that, for example, and, you know, when I lived in Japan, we did projects and we did very successful campaigns where the only thing we changed was a single line on the back of the pack. Was it ingredients? Sometimes, or just a benefit. uh, Okay. or, or, or Or just, hey, did you realize that if you use this, it will do this. Okay. Small print on the back of the pack, right? Okay. That was all we needed. Um, so they're extremely fussy about things, right? Quality is everything, um, and much more so. And, of course, you see that in other marketplaces, but much more on a constant basis in that marketplace. It's why you have to be very, very careful about uh, the backstory, uh, about the product, about the uh, how the quality is there, Um 
But it also explains some things like, you know, uh, you probably know that in advertising terms, uh, Japanese ads are more likely to use celebrities in ads than anywhere else in the world. It's the number one market in the world. And so uh, typically, for example, uh, it's you're twice as likely to use a celebrity ad in Japan as you are in the, in the United States. And some people, particularly some people working in the advertising market industry that come from the West, think, oh, that's just creative laziness. No, it's not. It's exactly the opposite of no, creative, creative say, laziness. Yeah. <laughs> right? The reason why you use a celebrity is because you have, and you have to carefully choose a celebrity who to the Japanese people, not to a Canadian or an Australian or, 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 or a Frenchman, but to the Japanese people, this celebrity represents what that product delivers. Okay, and and it becomes uh, uh, it's not just saying it's not the simple thing of, you know, Harrison Ford drinking a scotch. Oh, yeah, you know, like you just you've just paid a million bucks for him to drink the scotch in America. That's sort of discarded as well. Nobody believes it. Japanese don't believe he drinks it either. What they believe is that that scotch embodies the characteristics that they believe Harrison Ford has. So are you then saying that the consumers in Japan are more easily susceptible to the transference of identity? No, they're fussier about the transference of identity. They are much fussier. Uh, I think that's the common misconception is that this is the thing in the West. I think it's because primarily in the West we're lazy thinkers. I'll cop to that. Right? And so what happens is, is too often we're looking for the pun. We're looking for the joke. We're looking for uh, the, 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 the tears. <laughs> we're looking for the easy emotion, right? Whereas, yes, uh, and a lot of, for example, a lot of advertising in, Jap- in Japan is emotional. There's a lot of fun ads, right? There's a lot of jokey ads, which are jokes that, you know, are quite often physical, but also when they're verbal jokes, Translation doesn't do them any credit, you know, and they don't get recognised outside of Japan because nobody really understands the context of them. That's fine, but but my point is that you know, working in Japan, you have to be super fussy about understanding that people are looking for the next layer, the next layer, the next layer. And, and I'll tell you what the secret, one of the things that I discovered many years ago by accident, um, uh, reading a, 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 some academic stuff was. I was working on uh, the contact lens business, and we were we were doing the advertising uh, across Asia for one of the world's an American biggest I won't say the name biggest contact lens maker, right? Um, and we were having trouble in Japan, right? Where distribution wise they were great, but they weren't making the big breakthroughs that that American headquarters thought they should be making in terms of sales. And you've got to remember the Japanese people are the most the people most prone to needing some sort of eye uh, eyewear or eye assistance in the world. It's just genetically in Japanese, Koreans, North Chinese, it's it's just something about genetics that means their eyes are more susceptible to needing glasses or contact lenses at an early age. Well, one of the things in doing some background work that I found was really interesting was the way we look at it, look at things. So, for example, I'm sitting here you know, in my apartment, at my desk, talking to you. And as I talk to you, I'm looking at your face on the screen, right? And I'm following your face and your expressions, just this bit of your face, right? Well, Japanese people would be looking at those two pictures behind you. They would be more important to them than your face because context in Japanese culture, context is more important. 
So if you can't see the background, you can't understand the person. You can't understand why they're saying it or how they're saying something. So, for example, if you were sitting in a, in a, in a studio with just a blank white wall behind you, that becomes problematic, right? Like, well, well what, what context is there for, for this, right? Um, and so that's part of the cultural differences that you sort of have to understand about in Japan, it, it's that, right? But there's other things in other countries. What about um, technology? And I, you know, I, again, I have to be very conscious of time because <laughs> I don't know if we're going to finish Japan uh, yeah. in the next 20 minutes. Now, Japan, we think of technology. You know, Samsung, right. Samsung, whatever. Just for for decades, they've had Toyota. They've always been technologically superior in so many different arenas, um, and we just love Japanese technology and and games and and you know Nintendo and the whole thing. Um, is that something? Do we have to present a brand as we go to Japan as being technology forward? No, 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 not necessarily. I mean. Just- from the Westerners' point of view, and I guess, again, you know, uh, a lot of stuff I do end up doing is cultural stereotyping and, and country stereotyping. Or right? unstereotyping, yeah. Right, or unstereotyping. So, yes, it's true that since 1964, there has been a perception that Japan is like the, you know, a technological wonderland in some ways, and it's highly technical, right? Now, the, the truth is that Japanese people are no more technologically adept than people anywhere else. Um they have had the advantage of the early days of the robotization of factories and things like that. Yes, there was the Sonys, the Nintendos, and the big breakthrough companies. Um, but does the day-to-day Japanese person, are they more technologically fascinated than the typical Canadian? Not, not particularly. Um, <laughs> some people would argue in some way. I mean, in, in some ways, Japan is like incredibly, by, by the way you might think about it, backward. And I'll, I'll give you the simple example. If you go into a pharmacy in Japan today, 2022, there's a good chance that there will be no computer in that pharmacy. There will be a fax machine. And they, st- and they use a fax machine to order products, to get uh, anything they need from the doctor, uh, to me- any form of communication is done through faxes. And, of course, you know, you scratch your head and you go, Wow, that's so old-fashioned. Like, like quite literally, something like seventy percent of all the fax machines sold in the world today are sold in Japan, right? Um, uh, why is that, right? Like, this is this technological marvel country. Well, part of it is because within that industry, there has become a reputation that you can't trust computers because they're hackable. Fax machines are not hackable, or at least they're much more difficult to hack. And so, if you're concerned about the privacy of your patients' information, it's safer to fax things than it is to, to use a computer system. Now, technological geniuses watching, listening to this will argue to death about that, right? But that's a perception in the market that what's important is the privacy of your customer overcomes the efficiency that we might put on using modern computerized systems, right? So you have to take that on board. That's it for part one. Please join us next week for part two with Dave McCoggan. Until then, have a great week. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. 
the best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co, and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.